0: Hear the word of God. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have pre- previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've, they have uh, together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit, the, the poison of asps. Is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. And let us pray together. Gracious father in heaven as we come together once more under your word. We ask you that you would. Through the preaching uh, bring it to life and give it uh give it greater effect than than even the reading could could ever do. Uh, As you accompany the reading with the preaching together, we pray the sum total of that would be, in the case of this sermon, a real conviction of sin and a real readiness and willingness uh, to hear the message of the gospel as Paul will soon unfold. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are still in the midst of uh, Paul both anticipating and answering a series of objections and false assertions of the Jews in response to his preaching and his message, we will soon find as the whole argument here with respect to the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and sin, we will soon find that at least insofar as Paul is concerned, that he's answered every objection, that there's nothing left to say. That man has been, or at least should be, thoroughly silenced. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And so enough of your objections, Paul is saying. I've answered them all. There's nothing really left that you should be saying at this point. Except to submit to the truth of God and of the gospel. And so, uh, by the time we're done with verse 18, he will have left man again supposing he has listened to what the law has to say to him in a position of absolute silence before God very similar uh, I think as we'll see in that sermon i imagine at any rate we will look at job as one who had so many things to say but by the time he gets to the end he simply puts his hand over his mouth but we're not quite there yet paul is still uh he is still contending with the jew and and also the gentile but primarily with the Jew. And so he's proceeding along the same lines. He is, uh, he is presenting an objection and he is answering it. And, and so that's what we find in verse nine. What then? That is what given what he has just said is then the result. What is the conclusion? What then are we to conclude from what has been argued in the prior verses, which is followed by another question? Are we better than they? Again, speaking to the Jews, are we Jews, including Paul, any better off than the Gentiles? Is that our conclusion? And Paul's answer, you see, again, in verse 9, is simply not at all. Just as he had been doing in verses 3 through 8, he quickly... And forcefully brushes aside the assertion of the Jews. What some of them at least were saying. If you've been listening, listening at all, Paul says, to what I've been describing. Then you will know, and, and again, I'm, I, I'll give you another phrase from verse 9. Not at all, but you will know that all are under sin. That will be your conclusion. We've previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And so, no, the Jew is not better off than the Gentile, not with respect to the question of sin and thus the wrath and the judgment of God. But you notice he doesn't say that we are all sinners. He, he is going to say that. But that's not his precise phrasing. He is saying we are all Jew and Gentile like everyone indiscriminately under sin. Which means that all alike are under the dominion of sin. If you're familiar with the language or, or the argument, uh, rather, of Romans, you know that becomes the focus in particular of Romans chapter 6. The dominion of sin. The enslaving power and tendency of sin. It comes out again in Romans chapter 7. And the whole glory of the gospel, Paul says, is that it frees us from sin's dominion. By a breaking off this relationship and bringing us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But man, by nature, is not in that kind of saving relation. He is rather under sin. If you remember how he puts it in Romans chapter 6, you are either sin or you are under grace. Well, which is it? Man is under sin. The man he's been describing all along. Man thus considered in light of his rebellion. And his sin and the effect of sin, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, is to make man a slave. It isn't so much that man then wants to sin as it is the fact now that he's a sinner, that sin is compelling him to sin. To be under sin is to be enslaved to its power, the power of sin, and thus to be subject to its corruption and damnation. This is man's true state, Paul is saying. To be under sin. It's not one of righteousness. It's one of sin. And it's enslaving power. As though sin were his master leading him on. And this is what Paul says. He has previously charged. That is. He's already conclusively proved the point. Again. If you've been listening. And following the argument. You will have no trouble seeing this is the case. You wouldn't say something like. Well I think the Jew is better off after all. With respect to the judgment of God. No you would say. It's perfectly plain that all are under sin. And if we cannot see it, Paul realized that even now there were some that couldn't or who couldn't. He makes one final attempt to persuade the Jew and then he'll have nothing more to say. Uh, with respect to this point, at any rate, and he does so, he makes his final plea or his last ditch effort with respect to the Jew, who is still convinced that he was better off than the Gentile that he was immune from the judgment of God. He does so by summarizing, as it were, the message of the Old Testament with respect to the question of sin and judgment. Summarizing the message of the Old Testament by uh, offering a catalog of passages, almost at random it would seem, in verses 10 through 18, although we realize uh, by a, a study and careful consideration of these verses that there is in fact a definite order and a plan To his arrangement as he takes uh, all of these passages and and compiles them together. And this is how, as I say, he makes his final appeal. If the message of the Old Testament will not do to persuade the Jew, his own scriptures, which were his boast, then Paul realizes that nothing will. He who has the scriptures but will will, will not listen, nothing will help him. The message of scripture, if I were to summarize it first before looking at the list, is one of universal sin and depravity. In other words, what what we describe as total depravity to be distinguished from utter depravity, utter depravity. And you might think this based on this passage means that man is as bad as he possibly can be. That isn't the case. Uh, By God's restraining grace, there is still uh, there is still some restraint on uh, the ceaseless flow of sin. But man is depraved in every way. And in all of his parts. His mind. His heart. His will. His lips. His tongue. And, and so on. Every part of him. Is is quick to commit sin. He's totally depraved. And again this is the universal condition of man. This is Paul's universal indictment against humanity. But more importantly. it is uh, It is scripture in its totality. That makes this indictment universally against man. The natural man is in a state of enmity with God. He is at odds with God. He's at war with God. He's not, in other words, in a position of peace. And again, Paul is saying there are no exceptions to this, as indeed the Old Testament itself claimed. One of the most important passages, uh, though, though often overlooked in Romans, in understanding what Paul is describing, is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And I want to read those verses because he's describing the same picture. And so you realize from this passage and from Romans chapters 1 through 3 and then other other statements in Paul that this is a kind of constant theme in his preaching. And it is, again, the sinfulness of man outside of Christ and outside of redemption. For those who live, he says, according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, a picture of enmity, not peace, of being at war or being at odds. The the carnal man has no interest in pleasing God or in living for him. And as I say, this is something that you always find in Paul's preaching. It is a kind of essential backdrop to the gospel. You'll never understand at Paul's understanding of the gospel, which is just to say a scriptural one, unless you share his view of man. And so you find this in Titus or Ephesians, and you also find it in the gospels. Jesus is one who described man in the same way. Not just the Pharisee or or the wicked, profligate sinner of his day, but man in general. What we find in these passages is a picture of what man is really like in the state of sin and misery, to use the language of the confession. How wicked and sinful man really is by nature. Again, a picture in all of these statements of universal and total depravity, which is The fact and the only fact that makes salvation not only necessary for man, but it also describes salvation as it is and as it comes to man. Salvation takes a particular form as a demonstration of the power and the righteousness of God precisely because man is as he is. But if you look at what is being said in this passage and in the others, but this one in particular, Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 18, it's the most terrible of all. It's the most striking. It's the most depressing. But it's also true. Everything that Paul here says about man is true and it's true about everyone. And so I would say in many ways, this becomes a crucial test as to our belief in the gospel, the gospel he's about to preach in which and which he has also announced at the beginning in chapter one. He is going to preach. Do we really believe this? Do we believe, I mean, what he is saying about man? Is this really true? Are we prepared to accept the scriptural teaching about man? Well, as we look at this, uh, at this catalog of vices, I would call it. Or this summary of the Old Testament concerning the doctrine of total and human depravity. I mentioned that it wasn't just thrown together at random, but that there is a clear order and arrangement, which we could just divide under three headings, and then we'll look at each passage. There is the general description of man and sin, what he is like in general, verses 10 through 12. And then you have in verses 13 through 17 the practices of the ungodly man, uh, looking specifically at his members, his mouth, his tongue, his feet, and so on. And then in verse 18 you have a summary and conclusion. And so he begins in verse 10, looking here, verses 10 through 12, at the general picture, a description of man, that there is none righteous, no, not one, which is the leading assertion. It has to come first, if you understand what Paul is contending for in the book of Romans. It's the most relevant, it's the most sweeping. It explains best man's position with respect to the judgment of God. And so righteousness, we discover, before justification ever becomes the great theme, righteousness is the crucial consideration. It's what God reveals, Romans chapter 1 verse 17, and it's what man lacks, Romans chapter 3 verse 20. Well, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, to be righteous simply means, if I were to summarize it in the simplest form, it means to be in conformity with the law. It means to be in the right. It means to live up to the standard that the law sets forth, which then leads to another question, and that is, what is the standard set forth in the law? And this is something that Jesus sums up uh, perfectly in the end of his summary of the teaching of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. The demand of the law is perfection. It, it, it demands always Conformity to all of its demands, such that, to put it negatively, as James and Paul both say, that to be guilty of one single command is to be guilty of them all. Just as soon as you've transgressed a single command, you are placed in the category of those who are lawbreakers and thus unrighteous with respect to the righteousness of the law. You are devoid of it. If this is the standard, you've fallen short. You may have fallen short somewhere, on a spectrum. But you've fallen short. You couldn't quite reach the mark. And so uh, to, to extend that metaphor a little bit. And just to drive the point home. If this is the standard. It means that even the best men. Even the most godly men. That we read about in the Bible. Whether it's Abraham or Noah or Enoch. Or even the Apostle Paul himself. They all missed the mark. They all fell short. Altogether Paul is saying Men have fallen short of the standard. They are unrighteous. They all fit the description. There is none righteous. No, not one. Even the best men. Even the most eminent and godly saints. Even Paul himself. Of course, they might be righteous in a relative sense, relative to their fellow humanity. Sometimes scripture speaks of them like that. Righteous by comparison to the age in which they lived, but in comparison to the to the law of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. Ever since man fell into sin, there hasn't been a single righteous person. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of the uh, of, of, uh, of the standard. We all lack the essential requirement. We lack righteousness. The one thing God requires of us. The thing he makes clear in the law. And so this is the thing that determines our whole relationship to God. We are now considered by him as those who are sinners. Who live in rebellion whose lives are characterized not by righteousness, but unrighteousness. And thus, our relationship to God uh, as sinners is one of guilt. It's one of condemnation. It's one of alienation. Not one of peace, one of righteousness, one of life. And as soon as you see this, you're prepared to go on with the rest. The rest of the list, I mean, as concrete manifestations of man's unrighteousness or his total depravity, as well as explanations for why this is so. Why is man unrighteous? Well, one of the crucial reasons, although at the same time we can say this is, a, this is also a manifestation of his unrighteousness, is because he lacks understanding. There's none who understands, Paul says. Understands what? Well, obviously, uh, we could say as a preliminary consideration, everything that he's been saying. He's been explaining the state of man. But man doesn't even understand himself, Paul is saying. Let alone does he understand the God who is revealing his law and his wrath and then his gospel to man. And so what is the matter with man? What's wrong with the Jew and the Gentile? Why is he as he is? It's because he lacks this understanding. His mind is depraved. Uh, The the famous expression of Van Til, uh, I don't know if this will help you or not, but he spoke of the noetic effects of sin. The fact that sin depraves the mind. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is something that you find, again, not only here, but in other statements of Paul, Ephesians chapter 4 being the key one. I won't read it. But the mind that is depraved, the mind that is given over to sin, the man who is thus unable to understand, you set, forth, uh, you set forth the clear and evident truths of Scripture, and yet he cannot accept them. Because as Paul says, spiritual truths are only discerned spiritually by spiritual persons. The natural man cannot Accept it. Sin has blinded him. It's darkened his mind. It's depraved his heart. It's made all things dark. He cannot see God for who he is, nor himself for who he is. Again, he lacks spiritual discernment and a spiritual understanding. First Corinthians chapter two. The third characteristic of the man is. Is that he seeks not after God. None who seeks after God. You find that in verse 11. The second part. There is none who seeks after God. As a result of man's depravity of thought. The reality is that he has no interest in God. He has an interest in a great many things. Sin especially but not God. He no longer seeks him. Uh, To use the language of the shorter uh, of the larger catechism, rather, as his chief and highest end man was made for that. But as a result of sin, he's forfeited that pursuit. There's none who seeks after God. No one. Not really. Perhaps you might find uh, in the world a kind of superficial seeking, but no man by nature really seeks God. It's impossible. His nature is too vile and wicked and dark. Man, as a result of sin, is too bent upon himself to ever look heavenward and contemplate the glories of the divine life of heaven. To seek God and his glory again as his chief and highest end. To be led out of himself, out of a desire to know God and to worship him and to seek him and to obey him. That is not what you find in man by nature. All have turned aside, he says. That is... As a result of the prior point, they've all chosen another path. It is a picture of apostasy, but not just of Israel in the wilderness of, or of the church in a particular age, but of mankind in general, universally in every age. All of the sons of Adam together have turned aside. The universal tendency of man in sin is always to run away from God. And then, and then to think of him as little as possible, to pretend as though God doesn't exist, and to be at pains to prove that he doesn't. And so he says, uh, to, 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 to close off the first thought, the general description, all together have become unprofitable. Man in this state, with respect to uh, religious value, has none. He is worthless. There is nothing he does from the viewpoint of God and his justice and his judgment that has any value or any profit or uh, or any ability to commend him before God on the last day. Man has become as a result of sin, Paul is saying in essence, like a piece of fruit that's gone rotten. Paul himself reflects upon this in Philippians chapter 3 when he thinks of the righteousness that he had through the law. But now he was able to see as a a born-again Christian, as a new man, looking back on that. I count all these things as refuse. Even my best works were worthless, he says, by comparison to knowing God through Jesus Christ and having his righteousness through faith. And so that's the general picture. But then Paul proceeds to describe And I think we can do this more quickly, the practices of the ungodly in verses thirteen through seventeen. And we notice the diversity of his sin. He practices sin by all of his members. And it is again a picture of total depravity. And we would almost say utter depravity, although uh, we know better. And we could we could further subdivide this section in two. There are the words and then there are the deeds. The words he speaks of in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's a terrible picture. It is a picture of those who are always speaking what is evil. We have here the sense of what Jesus uh, describes, again, speaking of man and sin, but also we could say this truth applies to uh, man who is redeemed, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reality is that the heart is vile, and so that vileness is always coming out in his words. Perhaps you can't tell, but you see he's full of deceit. Paul says that. But there isn't life that's coming up. It's the stench of death and even the poison of asps, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, The tongue is a restless evil, James says, especially in the life of a sinner, an unredeemed sinner. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just speak what is evil. But most important of all, he does what is evil. He's always doing what is wrong. And so he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. It's a picture of enmity, not that man is always committing murder, but that his heart is full of murder. And thus his life is one that is characterized by enmity, man versus man. Man and man are always at odds. Is that surprising to your ears? Living in America today, seeing men and men at odds. That's the history of the world, beloved. And if you accept the scriptural uh, characterization of man, you'll have no trouble accepting it. Men are always bent on the destruction of other men. That's the position sin has placed them in. Do you remember what the first sin was after the fall? It was the murder of one brother by another. When Cain killed Abel, their feet are swift to shed blood. But then he says, destruction and misery are in their ways and and the way of peace, they have not known. Destruction, misery, no peace. Sin always brings these things about conc- concretely in people's lives. Sin's tendency is to destroy. It is to make one miserable. It is to rob one of peace. Not just between him and God, but between him and his fellow man and even with himself. His whole life is thrown into Turmoil. But it's all concluded by what he says. And this is the final and the most terrible indictment of all. There is nothing more damning than what he says in verse 18. And that is there is no fear of God before their eyes. They live as those. Not only who think of God as little as possible or pretend that he doesn't exist. But those whose lives are devoid. Listen, who are devoid of worship. That's what is being described. Whose lives are devoid of the fear of God. That means they don't reverence Him. They don't reverence His majesty. They never thought to praise Him. They never thought to fear Him as the dread judge of all. They never thought to repent and believe and listen to the gospel. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so that's the picture. But let me... Move on to what I would uh, describe as points of application. And the first is that we must be prepared to accept this as the true picture of man, not an exaggerated picture, not a description only of the worst kinds of sinners, but a description of each and every individual since the fall or else everything that follows when he comes at last to his description of the gospel in Romans chapter three. Verse 21 unto the end as a powerful demonstration of the righteousness of God. None of it will ring true. It will seem as though perhaps, especially as he comes in the first point to the cross of Christ, as though the remedy were too strong. Why such a remedy as the cross even of his own dear son? Why go this far unless man is really this bad? And so we must see and we must be prepared to accept that this is true of everyone. This is a picture of man and sin, and it is an accurate one. Against the temptation to say that Paul has gone too far, that he paints too broad a brush, that he exaggerates for the sake of argument, we are rather humbled to realize that it is true, all of it. This is an accurate picture of man. Man. It is true of the unbeliever, first and foremost. The man in the world, the poor babe born into this sinful world, is born like this. Into total depravity. Every man in the world right now, outside of this service, is like this. He's revealing it constantly. And it really isn't hard to see or accept uh, when we look at man in the world today. Of course, as we think of him, he may have convinced himself that that isn't true. That he really is better than scripture says or than the Christians say. But he's deceived. He only realizes how little he understands. And so as a result of this, we Christians do not entertain high hopes for man and sin. The man of the world. We are realistic and hopeful only that by God's grace he might be saved. But apart from that, we are pessimistic with respect to man. We see him him as one who is like this. We are not hopeful. We are hopeless, short of the gospel. But then we must go further. We must realize this is also an accurate picture of ourselves, but for a real work of grace in our hearts. And even then, we realize much of what Paul says remains true. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is the most terrifying mirror that you ever have looked into in your life. And what do you see when you look into this mirror? Do you see a picture of yourself? Do you understand that apart from Christ, that we are all like this? And that our flesh, even now, is still like this? As Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. No man is prepared to accept the gospel until he accepts this as the true picture of himself. It's the man who protests. And denies this is true of himself, that you can be sure is a stranger to grace and is no Christian. But the Christian is one who accepts this is true, even of himself. He's not afraid of being humbled and confessing his sin or of staring into this mirror and seeing how bad he really is. No, he sees in this mirror a true and accurate picture of himself. What he was by nature, even if he is this no more, though he is still aware of the blackness of his own heart and of the the sin that still clings to him. Again, you think of what Paul says of himself in Romans chapter seven. The Christian is someone who entertains no high notions of himself. He boasts only of God and his grace. But as for himself, again, Romans chapter seven, wretched and miserable, miserable. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That is the position of the true Christian. But then that leads me to say this as well. As another point of application that nothing so magnifies the grace of God to meet my sin as my own sense of sinfulness. My sin is what magnifies the grace of God. Didn't Paul just say that? And he'll say it again. In Romans chapter 5, of course, the Jews were abusing this, but there was there was enough truth in it that we're able to claim it for ourselves. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Well, that's true, he acknowledges, though they were saying the wrong thing. But it is my sin that magnifies his righteousness. If the truth of God, again, verse 7, has increased through my lie to his glory, the more I see my sin, the more it magnifies his righteousness and his truth and his glory. Because if this is what we are really like, if everything that Paul has just said in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18 is actually true, even of ourselves, and we begin to see this for ourselves and accept it as true, and then to feel that we are wretched as sinners, how glorious then does God's grace begin to appear to us, seeing that we are like this? And that he should save even such wretched sinners as we. You see, once I accept this picture is true of myself, I almost can't believe the gospel. It is too incredible almost to imagine that God would ever save the wicked, the God-hater. But never do we reason, as the unbeliever does, that if my sin is what magnifies God, God's uh, magnifies God's glory let us do evil that good may come verse 8 you remember that as the final absurdity no we don't reason like that we reason simply like this how great must that grace be that saves a wretch like me you think of Newton's hymn amazing grace how can it be. How indescribably good and gracious is God that he would hand over even his own dear son for sinners like this. And how clearly does the love of God appear with this consideration? Romans chapter five. How much does grace seem to abound when sin abounds? But we also conclude that the glory of Christ appears and that he knew no sin. That he partook of our humanity to the full. Sin accepted. Romans or Hebrews. Excuse me. Chapter 2 and chapter 4. He was tempted like us. There is no temptation common to man. That he did not have to contend with. Only to a far higher degree. And yet. He as a man. Prevailed always. He overcame all that Satan could throw his way. And what we realize as a result of that. That. Is not just to say that he's sinless, undefiled, separated from sinners. Hebrews chapter 7. That's certainly true. But we can go even further. And say that Jesus Christ stands alone as the single exception to this. We are able to say when we read this. As the universal description of man and sin. That there is one exception. There is one truly righteous man. Though at the same time. We also are able to say that he had no need of it. He had no need Of righteousness for he was already perfect. He already was the son of God. But it was and is that righteousness that he offers to us as a gift. As the very foundation of the gospel and our salvation. The righteousness which we find by faith and justification. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 18 and 19. Therefore as through the one man's offense that's Adam. Judgment came to all men. Resulting in condemnation. Even so through the one man's righteous act. That is Jesus. The free gift came to all men. Resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience. Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience. Many were made righteous. The righteousness of one. Is enough to overcome the sin of many. And so the gospel is seen against this backdrop. As we're. We're just about finishing. We have one more sermon. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 still remains to be preached as the summary and conclusion. But here is the backdrop of the gospel. Simply put, that man is devoid of righteousness. Man is a sinner. Man as a sinner is also totally depraved. And that this is the universal position of man. So I come back to this question. And that is, can we really accept this? Or do we secretly wonder when we read these verses, whether Paul has gone too far, whether man is really this bad? And that is the test, beloved. It reveals whether you're a Christian or not. The man in the world never accepts this, but the Christian is one who does. He says, it's true even of me. I am one who is like this. And oh, but for the grace of God, I would go on uh, continually from worse to worse. But when I, as a Christian, think of what it is to be saved, I can only think of Christ and his cross, which is, again, where Paul arrives immediately following this. And at the same time, when I think of others, I have the same thought. I would not heal. I would not propose this remedy until he's truly wounded like this, looking into this mirror with shock and horror at himself. And until he is, I have nothing to offer him. The gospel cannot help him, because when I tell him of God's power and his righteousness in the gospel, he'll only wonder why such things were ever necessary in the first place. But to such a one who sees what he really is in the mirror of scripture, and thus who understands and accepts the truth, one that is who comes to a true conviction of sin, then to him we're able to say, my dear friend, I have something that can help you. I have the message of the gospel, and I, like Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is the message we will soon consider. But let us understand again what it is that has made it necessary, as found in the very next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Amen. And let us now come to the table.